On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we talk about the city of Hamilton's new climate change emergency declaration. Is this symbolic or is it actually going to affect something in the city? Is it going to have some sort of implications for how the city does business? We're also going to chat about self-driving cars. A kind of a bad thing happened with a self-driving car the other day. The kind of thing you wouldn't want to imagine could happen if you were ever in one. And we chat about, well, football leagues that are folding and baseball teams that people aren't too happy with these days. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The other day, Hamilton City Council voted to declare climate change an emergency. I think it's not the only city that's done this, and it's raised some questions about what that exactly means, which I think is a fair question. Some have suggested this is a symbolic thing that, you know, we're, we're standing up and saying that climate change is something that we don't like and that we got to do something about. And we are generally in support of efforts to control or combat climate change. Others are saying, no, no, this is a prism through which now all decisions and all discussions around the city council table are going to be seen. That if we have to decide on something and there is an element of climate change or a potential for something to do with climate change involved, this is going to be part of the discussion and what helps us guide us towards decisions. Well, let's find out what it exactly does mean. John Paul Danko is counselor for Ward 8. He joins us now. Counselor, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And just your intro there with the theme from Star Wars, I'll make a, a connection to climate change for you. Shoot. Yeah, please. Um, so I think uh, you'll notice in, in Star Wars, which is a dystopian future, uh, nobody's burning fossil fuels to power their spaceships. So, you know, the net uh, zero carbon um, future is inevitable. I don't even know if Darth Vader was an anti-climate change guy or if he was the cause of the climate change emergency. We can dive into that one a different day, perhaps, have the Star Wars climate change connection discussion. Um, but for this one, and thank you for coming up with a good segue. I was trying on the fly to figure out how that was going to work. I appreciate you doing that. Is this declaration that the council made, is this symbolic or is it something more than that? No, it's not symbolic. And uh, I think that was actually one of the concerns that I had going into this discussion, is that if it was going to be just symbolic, that I would not support it, because making a symbolic gesture like something like that would be worse than not doing it at all. So it, to me anyway, it is absolutely not symbolic. And uh, the fact that we do have actual um, actions associated with the declaration of the emergency, I think, speak to that, that um, it's meant to be a, a focus of all the climate change initiatives that we do across the corporation of the city of Hamilton and to make sure that uh, we focus those in, into one initiative that has specific targets and specific goals and that we track our progress and measure our outcomes. So uh, to me anyway, it is absolutely not symbolic. And if I read correctly that the ultimate target would be zero emissions by 2050? That's right. And that comes out of a report from the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which indicated a need for a a huge reduction in carbon emissions um, from 2010 levels within the next 11 years in order to have a chance of us um, um, keeping our global warming to within one and a half degrees Celsius. So in terms of the emergency, why this declaration now, it's because they're 
there has been a clock assigned to this and in its ticking. That though sounds, uh, while the intent may be right, the intent may be very good. That sounds, I think to a lot of people will say that sounds like it's going to cost us some money though. If we're going to do this, the tax is going to not, not even a little money. It's going to cost a lot of money. Well, I think it's an interesting notion um, to define between cost and investments. So with any change in, in how we do things and you know, this would be a pretty big change. Um, there are costs associated, but there's also the cost of doing nothing. And in the long run, as, as a city, as a municipality, I think it's pretty well established that the cost of doing nothing will far exceed uh, the cost of our action. And, and we have an opportunity now that we can choose to act and we can choose um, what that action looks like. And, and I think that there are some very real economic opportunities involved with being on the forefront of something like this, which is where I want to see the city of Hamilton. So, so I mean, you've thought through this, obviously. Uh, give me an example. I, there's probably many, many, many more that you can't. But give me an example of some place where this could come into effect or how the, what this could look like. Well, I think it comes into effect across pretty much every single city department. So just in, in our planning department, when we're talking about where we live, where we work, and where we play, um, and how we get around our city, that climate uh, focus, can have a very big impact on where developments are approved and what those developments look like. Um, on the public works side, we're already through our Hamilton Renewable Power. We're capturing methane from our um, our landfills and using that to generate uh, clean electricity, which is the fuel of the future. Um, on the public health side, something like uh, Lyme disease is a climate-related disease because the ticks uh, that carry Lyme disease are moving north because of the change in climate. And that's, you know, that's that's only one part of public health that we'll have to consider moving into the future. Uh, I want to go through some of the areas, if I can. And again, I understand this is new. I understand you probably don't have all the answers for this yet, because, of course, you're also only one member of council, so people will have different opinions. But some of the obvious areas then that this would seem to target. And, and number one would be the roads and cars. That's the, I think when a lot of people think of climate change, that is one of the number one things people are thinking about, burning fuel and all that kind of stuff. Does this mean that the city would lean even harder towards public transit, towards bike lanes, towards walking, towards other things, and, and do less and less or try and move away from driving? I hope so. Um I think I've heard it said, uh, I believe it was the uh, Environment Commissioner for Ontario that said uh, land use planning is Ontario's tar sands. And uh, in that sense, and you're asking about things that might be contentious, that's probably the biggest one is changing our car-dependent uh, municipal planning into, as, as you mentioned, more of a, a walkable, uh, active transportation and a denser form, which is a pretty big change for a lot of people. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a city that is not just geographically challenging because of the mountain, but it is a spread out city. And that, 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 that's another thing, right? As soon as this was passed, there were some, uh, we'll call them activists, but people who were there, I think they would describe themselves as activists saying, well, the next thing you should do, or the first thing you should do is cap the boundaries on how far out people can be buildings. Cause we want to dense, further densify the urban areas. Would that fall into the same thing? 
Well, that, that comes into part of the, the discussion around when we're talking about a climate emergency and what actions we're actually going to take is, is how we build and where is is important part of that. And I think the province has already taken the lead on some of that with their, their places to grow initiatives in the green belt. And we saw what happened when uh, the provincial government uh, floated that trial balloon of, of, of walking away from the green belt. Uh, municipalities were very much against that, and uh, and the the uh, provincial government relented, and and it's something that's still there to help control and guide where our city develops. But uh, in this context, I mean, when we're talking about climate change and carbon reduction and moving our economy to to a carbon a zero carbon future. Um, in an industrial city like Hamilton, we're also talking about some of our industrial emitters. Um, I was just at the uh, the airport last week, and as we know, air travel has a pretty big um, inherent carbon footprint. And when you're ordering a package on Amazon or eBay or whatever, it's coming in a box on a plane, you know that that has a pretty big carbon footprint attached to it. And I think consumers... Um, want and now we have a mandate to discuss these things that how are we going to actually address these issues and reduce that carbon footprint so there's there's so many multifaceted uh, initiatives that we can take as a city as a municipality to to move towards that zero carbon future well and that's where I, I think it really does there, a lot of these are very tricky things but when you mention the airport because we've for I mean how long now you've lived in the city forever I mean how long have we been trying to bump up the airport and make the airport busier and more of a hub and more the 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 lands all around there, uh, this becomes a tricky part then, is how do we say we want to have more airplanes and more airlines using our airport while at the same time cutting down our carbon footprint? Yeah, and it, it, it is, it's, I mean, if it was an easy uh, thing to solve, we would have done it already. But mm. uh, uh, in terms of the airport, so when I did ask that question to, uh, to the CEO, um, of the internet of the Hamilton International Airport, one of her replies was, "Was their their carriers so DHL and um, um, I can't remember the other ones, but the other cargo um, um, shippers that fly in and out of there have changed the the sizes of their planes to a wide body fuselage, and they are flying twice as much cargo on the same plane and um, changing how they ship and sort packages." So. It's not an impossible problem to solve. There are solutions out there, and it just takes, again, that focus for corporations and for the city of Hamilton or municipality to really take it seriously that, yes, this is a problem that we're going to address and we are going to do it now. And there was one more story that moved on the, it's on the spec.com right now. People can read it. It's, uh, the steel industry is now asking for some leeway on the carbon emissions that the federal government is putting down. They say we can't really get to these numbers. So here's here's now where it becomes, I, I would think, again, really tricky for the city council. Do you have the uh, uh, companies in this city that employ hundreds, thousands of Hamiltonians? You don't want to hurt them. And at the same time, they're saying we want to do something that would fly in the face of your carbon or your, your pollution climate change policy now. How do you balance that? It's... I don't know that it's it's a true choice that we have to choose between the environment and in the economy. And in in terms of traditional high emission polluters such as the steel industry, I mean 
we're not just talking about carbon. We're talking about all pollution in that case. And, and I think everybody can agree that a reduction in that is a good thing. And there are other ways that we've already seen um, technologies that have come on to re- reduce. So, for example, when we're talking about acid rain in the past, um, large corporate emitters uh, were, uh, I believe it was a cap and trade system. So similar to what we're talking about with carbon, but instead of carbon, it was for sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide. So again, these big, um, what seem like insurmountable problems can be solved. It just it just takes the will and the drive to actually um, come up with solutions and implement them. And I, I honestly, I genuinely don't think that it's a choice between economy and the environment. We can do both and we have to do both. We've got to run, Tad. I don't even have time to ask you if you're going to follow Jason Farr's example and cut back on beef and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not intending to, but, uh, you know, everybody has to to take their own steps. And um, instead of cutting back on beef and cheese, I'm going to walk to work. Counselor John Paul Danko from Ward 8. Appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This has been a a dream. This has been the 21st century vision for as long as any of us can remember. We're eventually going to have these driverless autonomous cars that will take us where we want to go and drop us off and then go drive away, I guess, and park somewhere else, then come back and get us when the day is done. And honestly, it seems that dream is getting closer and closer and closer because it is getting closer and closer and closer. We do now have cars being tested on roads that are autonomous. And it seemed as though all along, and probably still is, I don't want to overstate this. I was going to say it seems as though we are getting very close. I think we probably still are. But then I read a headline today. Let me read you the headline because it kind of caught my attention. Hackers have weaponized a Tesla. Uh Uh-oh. Subhead, a Chinese research lab tricks a Tesla Model S into driving into opposing traffic. That doesn't sound good. That is exactly, I think, the nightmare that a lot of people have about the whole idea of automated cars. What happens if something goes wrong? Oh, and you want to know how they did this? Here's the amazing part, because you would think, oh, they must have had an entire team of people hacking into the computer system. No, they painted three little squares in the middle of the road, and somehow that threw off the navigation system. I'm not sure I understand, but we're going to try and figure it all out. Christoph Charneski is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Waterloo, where he runs that university's intelligent systems engineering lab and is the co-leader of an autonomous vehicle project at the university. He joins us now. Dr. Charneski, thanks for doing this today. Wonderful. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I always figured that when the day came that we heard about someone causing a autonomous car to go haywire, it would be because there had been someone who got into the computer somehow, hacked in and did something malicious. Uh, Drawing three painted squares on the middle of a road sounds too easy. Uh, Well, I guess, uh, you know, we kind of have to back up a little bit here. And uh, for Tesla, this is really a driver driver assistance system, uh, meaning that the driver should be paying attention and there is absolutely no promise that the um, vehicle will, you know, figure out all the driving that normally a human would uh, figure out. So um, the, the three squares were basically just uh, telling the vehicle, hey, um, here is an um, extra marking that tells you how you get into the right lane. 
and um, yeah, and that just drives into the opposite lane, right? It means that um, the systems that we use for, let's say, driver's assist, they are not very smart, but people might think otherwise, and that's a deadly mistake sometimes. Well, this is the this is to me the most interesting part about the whole dra- the autonomous car thing is that if we're going to ever make one, and you are working on these kind of things. If we're truly ever going to have a really autonomous car or a self-driving car that I can read a book or whatever else, you and the other people who are working on these have to have literally considered everything, every possibility. And I don't know, is it possible that if, that we can ever have considered every possibility? Yes, that's a, a wonderful question. It's really hard. I mean, that's what uh, engineers are trying to do. Um, and it's a very difficult problem. Uh, the, the way we will address it, um, at least in the near future, and by near future I mean the next uh, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, these things will be geofenced, and we'll be working in environments or driving in environments where we um, kind of know what's coming up, and anything that, that's unusual, it will be detected as unusual. So to give you an example, um, for for this particular case where where you know just was tricked to to go into the opposite lane, uh, we would um, never do this without cross-checking whether this is right. So, for example, we would have a map uh, that would tell us that oh, suddenly now uh, you know uh, this car is uh, based on the lane marking deciding to go to the opposite lane. If if, if that's um, not in the map, if this is not consistent with some other source information, we would not do that. Uh, you know, it would, go, it would basically go in a special mode. It would, um, you know, uh, essentially, um, you can call it freakout mode. It would stop, um, potentially park on the side of the ro- road, and um, yeah, we would basically minimize these type of cases. Yeah, that covers all the things that are predictable, right? That that covers it, it, the the fact that we know when you say we geo. What was the word again? We geo, um, geofencing, geofencing. Yeah. 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 So we know where the road is supposed to go. We know where the sidewalks are and all the rest, but it, it, it still doesn't factor in the fact that a little girl could run across the street or a boy could run out to get his ball or someone could cut in front of you with their bike. I mean, there's always going to be unexpected, unexplained things, right? You're right. And you know, t- today, today's artificial intelligence technology, uh, really Kind of, it's, it's amazing at crunching lots of data, but it doesn't have the common sense that a human would have. And so the only hope is that we actually um, have a way to feed the system with lots of data to compensate for this lack of um, common sense. And so that means that, um, for example, you can do what's called um, sometimes fleet learning, or you can think of it like as a collective learning. Um, if you have a fleet of autonomous vehicles, each of them is recording its environment and it's, uh, in a sense, can be used to um, learn or, or improve the system. Uh, and you can only scale it essentially by um, you know, basically crunching lots and lots of uh, all these special cases. And at some point, the hope is that we reach a, um, a level that actually will be matching human performance, at least statistically. Ideally, ultimately, would this whole thing with autonomous cars not work at its absolute best if every car on the road was autonomous so they could work off each other as opposed to some of them working autonomously and some human driving, which is unpredictable? Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, with, um, you know, basically 
having all the cars equipped, not only with automation, but uh, communication, you would be able to um, organize the traffic in new ways. Um, you know, you, you just imagine how you want to merge into uh, maybe heavy traffic and you could request that merge. Um, so you can coordinate these vehicles in a in a exactly predictable way and um, you can send these requests ahead of time. Uh, but even then, um, you know, the moment you have these vehicles mingle with, um, let's say, in urban areas with pedestrians and mm. cyclists, uh, you still have that challenge. Is it frustrating for you, though, when you work in this field, when you're trying to design this, you and I both know that, let's say that the self-driving cars go on the road eventually, and we know they probably will, and there is one accident that happens, there's going to be people saying, oh, we've got to shut these all down because they're not working right. Meanwhile, we have accidents with people driving all the time, and no one says we have to get all the people off the road. Well, I, I think, um, you, you know, you, you can you can see it both ways. Uh, um, I would say that um, all the engineers that I talked to, they, they realize that... Um, you know, safety is, is the utmost, um, the most important aspect here. Like in the long term, we really want to exactly reduce the number of accidents and, and fatalities. Uh, but we we know that, of course, we cannot build, build the systems uh, to be perfect. But we want to use the sort of zero accidents as, as our target. Uh, and um, you know, there will be mistakes made along the way. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, there, there are some ethical questions that, that we will have to face and address. For example, um, you know, if we if we said we have a self-driving car that's better than average human, the question is, would it be sufficient? Um, and uh, you know, that basically would mean that there is, uh, you know, around half of the people uh, would would be making a bad deal by by getting into mm. such a car because they just drive better than than the average. So uh, the the bar is pretty high, and and for sure, um, accidents. Uh, will happen, and in the end, it's all about uh, uh, you know how we, as a society, uh, come up with what's acceptable risk, what do we want, um, and it's and it's uh, not going to be easy. It's it's not the, it's not a technical question. Well, I mean, we're looking right now where the now I know it's not exactly the same thing, but where Boeing aircraft, there's a, an aircraft that is grounded right now because one part of the automated flying didn't work and it caused a crash. Uh, had the pilots been doing it themselves, I don't know if that would have happened. I don't understand the airline flying business that well, but it, there has to be some similarity there that if something were to go askew and if something happened in the computer and it didn't work, there would be all kinds of questions. Right, and, and it's, it's an interesting comparison. In, in the aerospace, the, the key difference is that we actually have pilots who are um, very much, you know, well-trained. Um, and, you know, if you compare it to a Tesla car where someone, uh, you know, gets a car, they don't have any training about what the limitations of the systems are to get in and, and potentially can end up, uh, um, yeah, um, dying in an accident uh, just because they didn't really understand how the system operates. And interesting, in, in, in this particular uh, accident with uh, with the Boeing, uh, it turns out that um, um, pilots didn't get enough training because it was all about, uh, you know, upgrading the systems, making them more automatic, but while keeping the interface same as the old aircraft, so you can actually sell it by saying, hey, uh, you don't need any training. Um, and so it, it, sh- it shows that even in, in an area where, you know, we've invested so much into safety and it's actually very, very much safe, accidents like that happen. Um, so I believe that we'll be learning a lot from that. 
Just before I let you go, the, the I do want to ask about the other part though, because when we when we've thought about this, this is a th- this accident or this thing that the lab was able to do with these three squares on the road is very simple. But what about the idea of someone being able to hack into a self driving car system or an entire fleet of cars in a malicious way? Because that's that's one of the things that people have always wondered about. Is that a feasible concern? Is that a realistic concern? Absolutely, it is a realistic concern, and um, the response is just to make it hard, uh, as simple as that. Uh, and, uh, you know, like the, the example of uh, the Jeep uh, um, vehicle that was hacked two years ago by uh, Miller and Velasic, they essentially were able to go on, on a cellular network and just essentially prey and, and select vehicles that could be attacked. Uh, and, and, and completely remotely, uh, and they could uh, switch off the engine, they could ap- apply brakes, and they could also turn the steering wheel and send someone into a ditch. And, and this was done on a production vehicle, and it turned out after that that basically that vehicle just didn't have enough of security protection. You won't have, you won't be able, there's always a, a catch-up, um, yeah, basically, um, game between, uh, like, uh, you know, the malicious attackers and, and uh, people who want to uh, guard against those attacks, um, and and so the best we can do is to always share the, this type of information and try to make these systems explicitly, you know, more cybersecurity proof. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, what the industry has to take very seriously. And I, I see after that um, particular um, demonstrated attack two years ago, a lot of uh, um, companies have changed their ways. Yeah. Christoph Charneski from the University of Waterloo. Really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking some. Yeah, thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have had over the years, I'm going to list some of these, and this is not the complete list. The All-American Football Conference, American Football Conference, another American Football League, American Football League again, the another American Football League, the Arena Football League, AF, uh, AF2, Continental Football League, Fall Experimental Football League, Indoor Football League, Indoor Professional Football League, Professional Indoor Football League, Professional Spring Football League, United Football League, United States Football League, World Football League, XFL, now the AAF, all with money being put behind them, the idea that we can take on the NFL, this is going to be the one that works, and it never, ever, ever does. History says there's no point in starting a new football league because it's not going to work, Bubba. Why do rich people who seemingly have some kind of brains continue to believe they can make one of these things go? Well, here's the thing with this one, with the what well, you know, was nicknamed the AF. I thought the model, the original model that was put forth by one of the founders, Bill Polian, a man that we're very familiar with here in this area. He was respond one of the guys, one of the two general managers that built the the Bills in their championship years. This was supposed to be a developmental league for the National Football League, which I think makes a lot of sense because there are times, and we are we have seen where there are guys that are just coming out of college, have great skills that probably aren't quite ready yet, but need playing time instead of sitting on the bench somewhere. Eight games a year, regular season. I thought it made a tremendous amount of sense. But when the National Football League Players Association said, look, you are not allowed to have our our practice roster players, because that essentially was going to be an important part of this this league were those players on practice rosters. So when they were denied 
the playing of those players, I thought the model was all destroyed. And players that we've never heard of, instead of players that have actually been drafted, that, you know, regionally we would have heard of, and then you're just playing scrubs. So it's hard enough as it is to be a second league in the United States. And now you throw that factor that you can't get named players, a disaster. And now you've got the XFL that's going to start up again. Now Vince McMahon has tons of money. He can spend his money however he wants. Uh, but I look at this and I go, it's, this isn't going to work either. It, none of them work. And yes, your, your point is... Your point may be bang on that had they been able to get practice roster players that this thing would have worked. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. But at a certain point, after all these failures, and I can't even count how much money has been spent to try and make this work, surely the next time someone says, hey, I got a great idea, let's start a football league, someone is going to say, I have a better idea, why don't I just claw your eyeballs out with a spoon and it'll be less painful. Uh, The shocking thing is, I mean, Tom Dundon, who's the CEO of the Carolina Hurricanes, and a very, very wealthy man. When this, team began, when this league began to stumble a little bit two or three weeks into the season, somehow he got convinced or at least sold a bill of goods or whatever that with his help they could make this thing work. And he pledged $250 million towards the league. And basically, a little bit over a month later, the football operations are shut down. So as what I'm hearing reported, he has already lost $75 million. It just doesn't work. I think football is the powerhouse sports of North America. We love hockey in this country. Baseball isn't what it used to be. Basketball is on the rise. But in terms of marketing, in terms of money, in terms of television gains and television, people watching on television and radio, and even writers writing, the NFL is king. And nothing will come close to it. And, and you're, that, that is absolutely true. Although, again, I've got the list in front of me here, and they're not complete lists. But of those who have tried to take on professional basketball, try to take on the NBA, it is a long list of failures. Those who have tried to take on Major League Baseball, a long list of failures. And those who have tried to take on hockey is a long list of failures. There just seems to be this but belief Scott, in Scott, some Scott, guys' Scott, heads that they can do it. But Sorry to interrupt, but, but I think, I think the, going back to what I was originally saying, it wasn't to take on the National Football League. It was to complement the league. As the American Hockey League complements the National Hockey League, there's a complementary, there's a relationship that works there. With baseball, there are several minor league levels um, below the, the Major League Baseball where it would work. I think if the original model had kept forth, and I also will add in this, don't play at big stadiums. Go find some college stadiums or even some you know, really high-end high school stadiums where, believe it or not, in the States, that exists. So this way, I mean, when Johnny Manziel played his, original, his first game there, I think it was Memphis, I mean, it looked horrible. The, the optics are just great, are horrible. You know, and you just, we struggle here to televise things like that. And you know what I know, and I think our listeners know, that when there's no atmosphere behind a, sp- a televised sport, it, it, where's the excitement? I mean, we're seeing it with the Blue Jays right now, with, what, a 12,000 last night? I don't even know how many people were there today. Right? The, the whole thing just didn't work. I've, that is a big part of the reason 
why I have some concerns for both of the new leagues that are starting up in Hamilton this summer, the soccer league and the basketball. The, the it, Leaving aside the smart people who are behind it, the one area of real concern I have for those leagues is in both cases, they are playing in massive venues yep. that I think that if, if there's one thing I would say, no, 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 don't do that, it would be the venue. It's not the idea necessarily. Yep. If you, because here, here's the thing: if you play in a smaller venue, as you just described, it doesn't then give the perception that you're trying to be the Raptors or trying to be big, big, big time soccer. It looks like you're trying to be something so that people can latch onto it. I, that's my, that's my spot. That if there's one thing, that's the one I would be. And you just touched on it. That's the one I would be worried about. Well, I guess here in Hamilton, and it's funny because I mean what you're talking about there only really exists in Hamilton for both of the C, you know the CPL and the Canadian Elite Basketball League. It, it, they are playing in smaller venues, except for here in this city. Um, now, both franchises would tell you that the stadiums have been reconfigured um, to give a smaller feel, a more homely, home, homey feel. And I know the Bulldogs have tried such a thing by draping off the top level. I don't know if that works. We're going to see it. We haven't seen this product yet on the field for, for soccer. Now, you're going to get an outstanding crowd for, for Jeff C's first game. There's no doubt about that. It may well sell out. You may get 24,000 people there. But you're right. By the eighth and ninth home, team, home game, when you've got you know, your core base of fans that you're actually trying to grow, you know how many people will be there? We just don't know. But as we've seen in the past, um, you know what? The Canadian Women's Hockey League suffering from the same thing, playing in some bigger venues with you know 250 people there. It it just doesn't work in terms of trying to sell the sport. There is oh, I, I've long believed that TFC Toronto uh, fo- the soccer team down the road. Mm-hmm that one of the reasons why it has been successful in more recent years, and even before it was good on the field, people went because they wanted to be part of the atmosphere. They, right. There's a lot of people that go to those games, I really believe, who aren't diehard, diehard, diehard soccer fans, but the singing and the chanting and the flares and all the other stuff and the flags, it's all part of a fun experience. Take that away, and they have no interest in going there anymore. That it's a big part of being part of a community and being in something big and fun and exciting. No, you're right. I mean, and I think that's the part of pro sports right now. You know, you could go back 25 years, maybe even less, and there was less demand for the entertainment and sports dollars. Now it's spread so thin. It is exactly like you talked about with TFC. What are you selling me other than the sport? Why would I leave the comfort of my home, my sofa, my snacks, my beverages, and my 50-inch TV screen to go to the ball yard or the park or the hardwood, anywhere, right? And you've got these marketing departments will be pushed to the max to give people reasons to get down to the ballpark or to go see, you know, the basketball game or the hockey game. Right, because you can have a better view on TV. Every time. And you can have cheaper beer at home every time, and you can have better snacks, as you say, at home every time. Every time. Well, the, the, the Blue Jays tried the dollar hot dogs yesterday. They did. And, well, and based on the crowd, they only needed to buy two dozen. 
12,110. Yeah, it, but it, you know what? It Again, now how many people, if you've been to a Blue Jay game when it was, when it was full, when it's been full down there, Everyone talks about, oh, you know, the Dome is a crappy place to watch a game. The Dome can be a crappy place to watch a game, but if it's full and that place is buzzing, it's a fantastic place to watch a game. Yeah, go look at shots of Game 5 of what that was at, the 2015 ALDS against Texas. The Bautista flip game. Yeah, and tell me that wasn't, tell or any game in that series, and tell me there was an atmosphere. No, it but it wasn't even, at, yeah, of course there was atmosphere, but nobody complained about the no. park and about no. anything else. It, it was, was it was vibrating. It was so exciting and so good. And then yesterday, I was flipping around. I was lying in bed sick out of my mind, but I'm flipping back and forth between the Leafs and the Blue Jays for a bit. And every time I would go back to the Blue Jays, I thought that something had happened to the volume on my TV. Because you would go back, and honestly, it was silent. It was absolutely silent. It was like the it was like an homage to Marcel Marceau. It was like it was a mime convention that was going on at the Blue Jays. There was nothing. Yeah. And you, then you say, "What? Okay, so if I had bought tickets, and I had gone down there, what is going to lure me back?" And the answer is, if you don't have a team that's on the field that's going to win, you better have something in the stands. And if you don't have something in the stands, you know what? Call me when you got a team back together, and then I'll think about it. Well, and, and you're right about that. I mean, I, I, a game like last night really only appeals in terms of the baseball Blue Jays game would really appeal only to the hardcores. And you know, you mix in some of the other things that were going around the trading of a fan favorite. Um, you know, the, the, the seemingly, and I know, I feel like I could be wrong here. I feel like you're part of this, 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 um, culture that just the, the, the anger that, that lies within for man, Blue Jays management right now, um, people are wondering if, you know what, I might not even go to a game this year. You know what it is? I, I'm not, um, I don't have a beef. I don't have a big problem with the current regime of the Blue Jays rebuilding the team. You got to tear it down. You got to build it back. That that part I'm I'm fine with. It's the just the the general sense of disinterest in the fans. It, it just comes across as being that they don't care, and and that's the part. I think you can do this, Baba, in a way that makes it look like you give two craps about the people who have bought the tickets. I, I don't think they've. I don't think that Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro have done an, even a passable, even a remotely acceptable job at connecting with the fan base. That's that's the problem they've got right now. Is they are two unlikable people in that position who are doing what I think you need to do, but they're doing it in a way that makes them so bloody unlikable that you then are not cheering for them to succeed. You mean you wouldn't go to the field to see Socrates Burrito? Great name, fantastic name, but but Ross Atkins was on TV yesterday saying, "I know, you know, we're not in a popularity contest." Yeah, that I, was that, that was okay. a tough one. <laughs> I I understand that you're not in a popularity contest. That's true, but it doesn't mean that you have to be unpopular. There is a uh, Alex Anthopoulos for whatever you know you, you think he did well or did poorly as a general manager. At least when he talked. He didn't, it wasn't like they were trying to tick people off. It's from the moment Mark Shapiro or, or Shapiro arrived in Toronto, it's like he was trying to tick people off. And so now whatever he does makes people mad, even if he's doing the right thing. 
Well, again, I, I, I will stick up for him in the one sense that to follow the act that was before him was very difficult. Yes. Right? So, and and I think he was starting from, you know, negative five to start with, right? And the reports that kind of came out that, you know, he had balled out Anthopolis uh, for making deals and you know basically giving away the future. When those came out, it it just it really gave a bad look. And I think the media is to kind of blame for that because I mean the, the the fans will only you know will only soak in what they're told, right? So I think he he kind of started in the hole that way. And and you're right, this this isn't fun. For fans right now, it's it, you know even for me as a sportscaster to be making fun of the franchise, even even as I did today on, on you know on the news today, uh, you know it's not fun for me, but it is what it is right now. This team is just not very good. They're not a lot of fun. You know the the, the player the player or players that people can't wait to see aren't even here, uh, are supposedly injured. Um, and, and you're right, the the management are have been kind of. I, dare I say, a little hostile about their approach, about what they're doing to improve the team. I, I go back to the point. I have no beef with them rebuilding the franchise and restocking the farm system and all the rest of that stuff. I think that was necessary. Absolutely. I just don't think you need to come across in a way that, as you used a good word, hostile. I, I think from the moment they've showed up, they've made themselves unlikable. And that was unnecessary. That was that was completely unnecessary to, to, to do what you have to do. But anyway, that, that's where we are right now, and that, that's why I think people are mad. So now when you start getting rid of guys who were fan favorites and you come out there and you talk in Ross Atkins speak, which basically is a language no one has been able to master yet except for him. It's, it's analytic blah, 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 and stuff. And, it's, and, 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 and the problem is totally, entirely dispassionate. And I, you know, here's the interesting thing. Baseball, I heard someone today talking about it. There's no room for sentiment in baseball anymore, which is a really interesting comment. And that's kind of the Ross Atkins, Mark Shapiro philosophy seems. There's no room for sentiment. We got to analytically break down. And, and so Kevin Pillar analytically was not the best option for us. Okay. All right. But you want to know something? There were people who loved Kevin Pillar and loved the way he played and loved what he brought to this team. And when you just break him down to being an analytics creation, you miss what people love about this game of baseball. That's, that's, that's I think, the missing gap right there is you can be an analytics guy, but don't overlook the fandom that people have for these athletes. Well, you, I mean, you're correct in saying that. I mean, because I mean, when you get like that, then you become a numbers robot and, you know, your feelings are taking out of it. And, you know, I mean, for a guy that was what, you know, you know, and I don't, I, and I, I think we have to beware. And I, I said this yesterday that you know, let's not make you know Kevin Pillar to be out uh, like a you know multiple all star guy. Not at all. But you know, but he does. He has a good story in the sense, and he had some issues where you know he kind of said the wrong things. So, you know, if you remember about yes, you know, the, anyway, so he's had some controversy. But at the end of the day, he's a guy that was what drafted in the thirty second round or whatever it was, and and ended up being a major league player. And that's that in itself is a great story. Yes, and um, people, for whatever reason, and, and I can see why, because of the way he played, fans loved Kevin Pillar. He was not an all-star, you're right, he was not, but they loved Kevin Pillar, and that doesn't come across then 
I don't think from the people in charge. And there is that gap then because you're, you're dealing so much with the numbers and the analytics that you're missing. You, it's, you've forgotten what it feels like to be a fan. And that is, I think what they're dealing with. They don't know how to do that. Or at least if they do, they're trying not to, they're trying so hard to be above the fray that you're making yourself aloof. And that's a bad place to be. There are, Bubba, there are general managers who are able to do a rebuild and still have the fans on their side. It's not, it, it's not one or the other. Yeah, well, there's going to be a situation. They're going into a period right now with the playoff runs that, you know, and I say runs because it may happen, of the Maple Leafs and the Raptors right now where the Blue Jays can quite honestly for the next two months become completely irrelevant. It could possibly happen. I have five minutes for my 6 o'clock sports report and generally about three and a half for 11 o'clock. There may be situations, Scott, where I may not even mention the score. I might not show highlights. It, it is, and here is where Shapiro and Atkins, if they do find themselves in any kind of trouble, and I don't know where they stand with the Rogers people, is not with the rebuild of the team. It's what happens if they become irrelevant and what happens if 10,000 becomes the norm because this team is 30 games out in July. Then then does Rogers all of a sudden say, wait a second, now we got a problem because this is huge money that is being lost. Well that that's gonna be a really interesting one at that point. Or or are they able to talk their way through it and say, look, look get give us more time because we're in a rebuild. Give us three years and we'll be back to being forty five thousand in that place. Or maybe you drop the hot dogs to fifty cents. <laughs> Sorry, I had to turn it off there. <laughs> Coughing started. You were going to get me going. Uh, hey, by the way, speaking of the days, on a positive for Shapiro and Atkins, as I send you away, did you see the news about Troy Tulowitzki today? Oh, no. Did he get injured? He strained his calf and was taken to hospital for further evaluation. Oh, Unclear no. if he will be on the DL. Oh, no. So the what? Blue Jays are now paying whatever many millions of dollars, at least for him not to be here and injured, to be injured for the Yankees. Well, the number came out for for our listeners that don't know. Um, you know, the Blue Jays' current pre, uh, roster um, payroll uh, for their current roster is sitting around fifty one million dollars, which is, you know, in standards of professional sports, is bargain basement. But they have forty nine million dollars they're paying to players on other teams right now. It's almost fifty fifty. For the players that they're, you know, like Russell Martin and Troy Tulowitzki that are elsewhere, Kendris Morales that are elsewhere, and $51 million for the team that's currently here. Just con- unbelievable. Just consider this. The Blue Jays right now could not field a team of Clayton Kershaw pitching and Bryce Harper batting and just the two of them playing. <laughs> that would be about $15 million over their payroll. We need no. to just rub our temples and think 2015, 2015. Just think back of the memories. Go to YouTube and watch the seventh inning of that game over and over again, and we'll be all fine. Bubba O'Neill, appreciate you doing this today. Thanks, sir. Oh, I'm so depressed. <laughs> we'll watch for your highlights tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.